You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. On today's episode, we welcome back Ravi Valley as a guest to talk about an essay which he has recently written called On Conducting Arguments in an Honest Revolutionary Manner. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we're going to get to that interview with Ravi Bali. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. It is Wednesday, July 7th, and for this current event section, we're going to be talking about the criminal charges that were brought last week against the Trump Organization and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. Um, Andrew, I had, of course, been following this story like everyone else, but I've gotten so tired of getting my hopes up that some consequence will be handed down to Trump that I have not let myself get too excited about this case. And there was a lot of downplaying, at least in some quarters, downplaying this significance of these charges against Weisselberg and the Trump organization. What what are your impressions of, of the charges and their significance? Right. Well, I don't really know because uh, I'm not one of the, the prosecutorial team. And I think that outside of the prosecutorial team and without knowing all the evidence uh, that they have and other things, everybody is, is, is guessing. But what I think is that you can't judge the strength of the case or the consequences of the case by the charges that have been brought thus far. They're, they're not revealing their full hand, and I actually doubt that everything comes down to whether they get Weisselberg to flip. You know, obviously they would, they would like him to flip, but there's a unindicted co-conspirator mentioned prominently in the charges, and that's probably the controller of the Trump Organization, another high-level financial officer uh, who is cooperating with the authorities. So, in addition to that person's cooperation, possible testimony, they've got documents. They've got a spreadsheet, which is the alternative set of books right next to the fake set of books, at least in Weisselberg's case. What they have beyond the Weisselberg tax fraud is, is anybody's guess at this point. And the charges against Weisselberg are, are pretty significant. They're not just, I think a lot of people who maybe are, are self-employed or run small businesses or, you know, just deal with taxes in general, you know, are probably aware that there's a decent amount of gray area sometimes involved with like questions of compensation. You know, and sometimes there's been in the past week an attempt to play off these charges if they're really like insignificant. But this is like a significant amount of unreported income that he was drawing from the Trump organization. In addition to his yearly salary, which was close to a million dollars a year, you know, Trump was writing him checks to, for his kids' college tuition, for his wife's Mercedes Benz, for all sorts of extravagant things that even one of these items is like more than a lot of people make in a year. And he wasn't paying taxes and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it actually is. Um, there, it, it's a lot of money there. The way the scheme actually worked is that the real figure of Weisselberg's compensation for a certain period was 940000 And the whole idea of this fraud was to only 
declare on the, the corporate tax return part of that as employee compensation, and then Weisselberg would only declare part of that, and the perks were taken out of that. So if it's, you know, $50,000 for a grandchild's private school, he would be paid 890000 that year rather than 940000 and, and and that would be declared some sort of Trump organization corporate expense, which was, you know, just nuts. So it's a lot of money. It's clearly fraud. To call this like Trump and his people are, are saying it's a matter of fringe benefits. No, it's not a matter of fringe benefits. It's a matter of lowballing the actual amount of compensation to try to evade the tax consequences. That's not a fringe benefit kind of thing. It's an attempt to disguise compensation. And we don't know what else the DA has on Weisselberg, what else he has on Trump or the Trump organization. Um, but we can probably suspect that there are more charges coming against some of those people. But even so, this is a pretty significant charge against Weisselberg. This isn't just like something they threw together in order to try to put pressure on him to flip. Like these are real serious crimes he's being charged with. I think it was probably a strategic move and probably a very good strategic move to show Weisselberg what they could do to him because they very cleverly managed to say that he uh, defrauded the IRS, which significantly increased the exposure that Weisselberg has because it's a lot more money. It's an additional person, the IRS being considered a person. It's not just a case that he, he can easily walk away by paying a little fine and paying back the money that he owes. Because uh, it becomes a lot of money when you're uh, also defrauding the federal government from the taxes that you owe them. But the real issue is people getting their hopes up. And I read something yesterday, it was an interview with some psychiatrist who said that people make fun of Trump because they're afraid, they experience fear and anxiety, and, and belittling him is a way to like tell yourself everything's going to be fine. And people are saying once again for the zillionth time, oh, you know, now he's going to go down. And, of course, it never happens. And, you know, all kinds of people are saying, you know, well, he's never going to go to prison, so forth. Well, first of all, I mean, whether he goes to prison or not is, is one issue. Whether the Trump organization is destroyed and Trump is uh, financially wiped out, that, that, that's another issue, and that's not un- inconsequential. The Trump organization has a lot of loans coming due under normal circumstances it could probably you know roll over the loans with additional loans but it's not at all obvious that it'll be able to do so given the um, the situation that it's in and, and Trump is personally liable for over half of the uh, loans that are coming due and the total amount is over half a billion dollars. I mean, there are people saying that Trump is still, like, hugely valuable to the Putin regime, so they're going to make sure that, you know, he either gets the money to pay off the loans or they're going to lend, find a way to lend to him or something like that, but everybody is speculating. Nobody knows. And whether he goes to prison by virtue of this prosecution, I don't think anybody knows. People are speculating. It's not likely, but that doesn't mean that the man is not going to go to prison. To to tell people, stop hoping, it's not going to happen, the guy's clear, it it just actually denies our agency because we can do things to make it happen. I mean, 
look, that's a man who had rally after rally after rally, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up. There's no reason that, that our side can put some pressure or even march down to Mar-a-Lago and say, come on out. The man's a criminal, and if bourgeois justice system doesn't take care of him in the way that's needed, it really falls to the rest of us to do so. That, that, those are among the possibilities we have, and that's really the responsibility and the duty that we have to ensure that justice is done. And, and just to tell people, well, no, there isn't going to be justice. Live with it. You're a pawn in the game of history. I, I don't see that's the way to go. Before we started recording, we were both talking about the lack of coverage this issue has received in Jacobin magazine. Yeah, at least so far, I haven't seen anything from them. You know, and I'm worried that this is a part of the old line coming down from the anti-neoliberal left beginning in, I don't know, 2015 or 2016, that, you know, oh, let's not worry about Trumpism, let's not worry about Trump, this is all a distraction, I mean, the real problem is neoliberalism and the Democrats and this and that, and that's all a sideshow. Well, that sideshow, you know, almost managed to steal an election again, and had an insurrection that almost succeeded in at least offing the vice president of the United States and, and, and whatnot. Just because this is not about their pet issue, neoliberalism, does not mean it's not of a tremendous importance. Well, it's interesting because if it wasn't Trump in the headline, but some other white-collar criminal, uh, I think maybe Jackman would be all over the story and wanting to use it as a way to show all the corruptions in the U.S. ruling class and the problems of inequality and and such. But because Trump is the, the one who did it, they started ignoring the story. Oh yeah, they they've got stuff on the capitalist class and their 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 corruption and their greed and everything like that. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Up next our conversation with Ravi Bali about revolutionary debate. Today's June 28th and we are pleased to welcome back to the podcast Ravi Bali who has been a guest in the podcast many times in the past. Uh, we're going to be talking about a an essay that he just authored, which you can find in, in um, MHI's online publication with Sober Senses. The essay is called On Conducting Arguments in an Honest, Revolutionary Manner. And I have to say, it's quite a fantastic essay, Ravi. You really covered a lot of material, and I found it really clarifying and uh, and helpful. So that's going to be the topic of the podcast today. So I thought... We should just start off with just some really basic information um, about, you know, why you choose to wrote, write this and what the main themes are. Well, my intention was to give some guidelines as to what should guide revolutionaries when they're arguing with each other. So if there's a dis- disagreement between socialists and how do you conduct that in a way that advances the revolutionary movement and gives the forces of revolution a clear understanding of what's at stake... Now, none of the stuff that's in this article should be that controversial for a revolutionary to accept. So I I go through things like why arriving at truth is more important than winning the argument, um, why having a clearly structured argument is important so that it's not disjointed and it does follow a proper line of reasoning so that people can follow the logic of what you're saying. Because you can say the same sort of things with loads of digressions and meander all over the place like someone like Zizek does for example in almost everything that I've read by him but that makes it much harder for anyone who's reading it to understand 
So I, I try and explain why making explicit what the assumptions or the premises of your argument are is very important and it stops you talking at cross purposes with each other and it means that your assumptions can be interrogated and properly justified if necessary. I go through why what's taken as common sense should not necessarily be accepted as such and should not be accepted as true certainly and why for revolutionaries that means understanding distinctions in thought between different revolutionary thinkers or even between the same revolutionary thinker over time. I I discuss why if ideas are worth revolutionaries arguing about why it will have consequences for action and how an argument can develop over time and when we think we're working in a revolutionary tradition even then we still need to be careful of what is genuinely continuous and what represents a break in that form of thinking. So as you say it does cover a lot of ground but I tried to structure what some of the kind of rules of conduct should be when you're trying to have an argument between genuine revolutionaries. I think there's a, there's a lot in what you just said there that we could probably start to go into more detail about already. But maybe we could start with just this idea that you know, your paper is aimed at um, revolutionaries and about disagreements and conversations around revolutionary thought. So what what is different about those kind of conversations than any other kind of conversation where we're trying to arrive at a truth? One of the things I said is that revolutionaries would have to avoid the same kind of logical fallacies that you would try and avoid in an honest debate in bourgeois terms. But I think the, the difference is that for a lot of the left, having like the, the the Monty Python parody of like radical sectarianism where you just argue over inconsequential nonsense it's really not what you want to do and the, the main thing I think is to make sure that people are clear in laying out what it is they are arguing in an explicit way so that people can follow the logic of it and that rather than it being based on an ego of being proven right and just winning the argument in some kind of bombastic rhetorical flourish or just through force of badgering someone, that you are logically arguing through what the real issues are in a clear and well-structured manner so that people can follow the logic of it in a in a quite detached way rather than it being clouded by you know anything that is other than arriving at truth. And I think the left are, are sometimes, sort of like, like bourgeois society generally, it's more interested in winning at any cost than it is at arriving at truth. And that's you know, it's something that MHI have been describing as left-firstism for some time, where they put their own authority and their own desire for power and to win authority uh, in front of um, arriving at truth and working out how best to advance the revolutionary movement as a whole. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is really the issue. You know, people talk about discussions and so forth, but you have to confront the issue of what is the purpose of all of this? And that's the issue that rarely gets confronted. So I'm glad that you're making that the front and center question. You're basically saying these kinds of arguments, these kinds of dialogues have a purpose of getting to the truth. And, you know, so that we can onward and upward, uh, hopefully approximate uh, truth better than we've done so far. 
I mean, how would you answer people who would say, well, look, that's not really important. What's important is winning power, building a movement, appealing to pe- people, meeting them where they're at. Yeah, even like the, the, the late David Graeber, he had two decades ago, he had this article in New Left Review. He said, oh, for we, the new anarchists, your ideas are your business, and you're not going to ever convince anybody totally, and I'm not. So we keep our ideas to ourselves. We agree about actions, but uh, it's a private matter, and don't bother other people with with your ideas. How would you respond? I guess they're they're two different things, but one that we shouldn't have truth be the end all and be all, and second of all, why argue at all? Why not just like you got your ideas, I got my ideas? Well, for a start, I think that having kind of joint actions with people is entirely reasonable and even if you don't agree about everything that's fine as well but i think that we do all inhabit the same objective reality normally if as i say if if an argument's worth having for revolutionaries it will be about something that has consequence for action because the way in which you understand the world has implications for what you should do about it so for revolutionaries being clear about how the world works and being absolutely crystal clear on what the implications of that understanding mean, I think is is crucial for be, for people to be able to correct any mistakes they make along the way because it's the problem is not that revolutionaries disagree, it's the way in which they lay out those disagreements so that people can understand where they are in relation to each other and understand when they get things right or wrong. The clearer we make our arguments, the clearer we can make, sort of recognise when there's mistakes made and correct them as necessary. I mean, I was, I was listening to the um, podcast that you did with Ben Burgess. It, it was obvious there that there was a, an assumption on his part that, well, we have an understanding that exploitation is going on, but everything else is kind of shoehorned into that understanding that the working class does not get everything it deserves. And then it's almost like everything else seen as a secondary and less important issue. Whereas the idea that, look, Marx had a a theory of value and it wasn't just about the physical stuff that's produced that has implications for how the whole system works. That's, That's a classic case of something where there's a whole load of implications that flow from the nature of how you understand what capitalism is and what it would take to overcome it. And the fact that that had to be honed down and kind of brought out explicitly is a, is a classic case of needing to make sure that there's not hidden assumptions drawn in or that things are not just, you know, important distinctions are not elided. I, I think that that was a really good example of something that has enormous importance because it affects the whole possibility of revolutionary change. Yeah, I think that the G.A. Cohen argument that Burgess was using was sort of an attempt to say, look, we all agree on these, this, this fundamental idea about exploitation, so we don't need to worry about these other distinctions even. Or at least that's the way Burgess was, was using it. In the, but in the, in the process of doing that, as you were saying, you just wipe out actually all the really crucial distinctions. But, but it, it flows from a certain kind of politics. It's a kind of lowest common denominator politics, which is oriented to getting the most adherence 
uh, in the process of facing all kinds of differences and getting some very low-level, lowest common denominator basis. And you say, oh, we all really agree. And meanwhile, anybody with like really good, well-developed, worked-out ideas like Marx, like, well, you know, he's just a relic of the past. What he had to say doesn't matter because there's people out there that don't like uh, the whole concept of value. So what about them? You know, you don't want to turn them into unperson. So let's just agree that the the workers are exploited because they don't get the, the whole product, right? There's a kind of thinking underlying this, right? It's not just an error. Burgess is the latest of very, very long line of people. Cohen was not by any means the first who have tried to basically pick out pieces of Marx that they found acceptable and jettison the value theory and jettison a lot of other things. And if they want to jettison it, it's fine with me. The only problem is that they then call it Marx, or they then say, you know, it's an adequate substitute for Marx, or something like that. Uh, his own thinking just disappears in, in this process. So it's a really, it's a suppressive practice. It's, it's, it's not meant to encourage dialogue. It's, it's meant to shut down dialogue and to suppress any thought on the left that is too dangerous in terms of the goals of building a movement and winning adherence. I think it's also kind of slightly insulting, you know, to, to the working class, because if we're, if we're talking seriously about building a movement for change, then these ideas that have implications for action, if you're saying that people can't understand them and that instead we, we just shoehorn things that we think are too difficult into something that's easier to understand, such as, look, people don't get the full amount of the product they make, rather than the whole point about Marx's value theory is that it gives you an understanding of why there is a relentless drive to expand value. And it's not a subjective thing, or it's not just secreting something away, but it's, it's something about a third thing that is represented between different things that are exchanged in the market. And it's not any one item, such as linen and coats, I think is the example Marx uses in Capital, but value itself being something apart from that that is kind of represents both of them in an abstract form that that is marx's theory and if you want to then jettison that and say look we can just deal with physical stuff no just because it's difficult and it takes a lot of work to elaborate it and to grasp it in all its complexity that doesn't mean that you avoid doing just that because if you're going to capture reality and thought, it, it requires some work because the world is complex. Right. If your goal is to capture reality and thought, which is, I mean, that's what, what truthing is, you know. I, I don't think it's even that these people think like the masses are so dumb that they can't get the idea of value. I think it's more for a lot of them that, gee, we don't have a consensus about this in the left, and let's just go with the lowest common denominator ideas and battle the Jordan Petersons and the Ben Shapiros and those people, and let's unite around what we all have in common, and you, you should just like let yourself and your own ideas be subsumed in this process. If you're not willing to do that if you insist on your own ideas oh well you're a purist you're a sectarian and you know we we shouldn't have any of that i mean that that was not the ground of the debate with burgess right because we we were at 
much more basic issues because Burgess was trying to say you can just decouple the whole theory of exploitation, and he's very, very equivocal about whose theory of exploitation it is, right? Is Marx's theory the same as Cohen's theory? But he, you know, can you, he wants to decouple it from the value theory to be able, I think, to provide a basis that everybody can agree on. And the, the problem is that that's forcing us to agree that, uh, you know, there's a physical product basis for exploitation rather than a value basis. And I don't think it works, right? But I think the motivation is to basically not have controversial ideas on the left be aired and worked out, but rather to have the differences basically suppressed in the interest of unity. I, I think that that's what's really going on. I'm not sure that it's not sometimes just a cover for intellectual laziness. They they can't be bothered to work it out for themselves because they think their audience or whoever they need to win over can't be bothered to, to listen to it. So I think the, the, the kind of underestimation of its importance and the need to raise the level of discussion by making these things explicit and drawing out the consequences of it they just don't take it seriously enough. Right. But how, how would you respond? Because I got, I got this e- email message yesterday, today, you know, like, how would you respond to the charge of, you know, you guys are purists? How would you respond to the charge of you guys are sectarian? How would you respond when you say you're searching for truth? That means that certain ideas are better than other ideas and certain claims are better than other claims. How would you respond to the charge that, that this line of thinking is sectarian and purist? And it's exactly the opposite of what we need. First of all, I, w- I would ask them to explain why they think it's sectarian, because unless you think that there is no such thing as the objective world, and there is no such thing as the truth about the objective world, then arguing that some ideas make more sense of the world than others is obviously a, a, a completely basic revolutionary activity. If, if you cannot justify why your ideas make more sense of what's going on and better explain how things work, then it's just like saying, I don't care about science. I don't care about truth. I don't care about understanding. These things are just things to be toyed with or manipulated or used for quite cynical sectarian purposes. It's actually acknowledging that there is a truth and how do you best arrive at it that is the opposite of sectarianism, I'd say. Well, it depends on what you mean by sectarianism. You know, it's sort of like a, a slur that masks sort of like a aversion to people staking at different positions and dividing on the basis of those differentiations, which is like a basic, a basic part of philosophy and truth-seeking is that you make distinctions between things and you take a position based on those distinctions. I, I think that's a really good point. I think that, that the charge of sectarianism uh, and the whole term is, is used in a very different way from, for instance, the way that Marx used, you know, in the Communist Manifesto. There's a discussion of sects and sectarianism and so forth. And what Marx was very critical of and used the term sectarianism or whatever in relationship to was the attitude and the orientation to the mass movement. So if you were setting yourself apart from and in some kind of opposition to the mass movement, that's what he regarded as sectarian. What a lot of these people 
go around throwing the charge sectarianism around nowadays or about is we have a bunch of sects and you know i mean none of these are really mass movements and if you don't subsume yourself into our lowest common denominator if, if you're being sectarian to the sects so to speak then you're being sectarian right i i think it's just really mostly it's a power play it's, a, it's just a way of saying we're bigger than you are so shut up I think that's right. I, th- I think that if you were to take seriously the, the idea that you need to interrogate your own ideas and allow them to be interrogated by others and justify not only the premise but the form of argumentation, how you build up the case that you're making, then th- there is no problem in doing that in an honest and open manner if you're attempting to arrive at truth. That is what you should strive for. And I, I, I don't think there's anything that any genuine revolutionary should like shirk from. The problem is not that we disagree. It's how do you, in having that disagreement, make clear what it is that you disagree about. And in sort of staking your different positions, everyone can see what is the case they're making. And over time, you can see who's born out, if either of you are. I, I, I fully agree. But I'll tell you, you know, I, I think about this and I look at how people make choices about what organizations to belong to and, and so forth. I have rarely, if ever, come across anybody who said, what I like about the, this organization is that it adheres to certain methods. It adheres to certain rules and procedures about how to conduct discussion and, you know, seeking truth. It's more, I like this idea or that idea that that they have. And I always think, like, you know, well, anybody can be wrong and anybody can be right. You can have some great idea, but what happens next time? Where is the process? Where are the rules? Where are the procedures to make this not just a one-time occurrence? I think a lot of the time... it's a question of being seen as wrong will undermine your kind of intellectual authority amongst your adherents. So there's a reluctance just to say, okay, I hold my hand up. I was wrong on this occasion. Um, I fully admit this is why I got it wrong. And now that I understand it better, I'm going to abandon my old position and I'm prepared to accept yours. I think that's a perfectly acceptable thing for a revolutionary to do and in fact if if we encourage people to do that more as a an aspect of truth seeking then the revolutionary movement would be on a much stronger footing that's that is how we should conduct ourselves Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Andrew Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism 
extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements driving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interest separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world we intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Uh, in, in your paper, you make reference to what you call inference to the best explanation. What is that, and why is that important for a revolutionary thought? For example, when I first encountered MHI, part of the mindset that I had was that you have a set of ideas which you've been one to, and the way in which you conduct yourself is to argue those ideas out and test them to destruction. Um, and I remember having a conversation where it was pointed out to me that, well, that's not really the, pre the best procedure, is it? And as soon as it was pointed out to me that, well, testing an idea to destruction, in other words, that you cannot possibly sustain that through whatever intellectual somersaults that you need to make or um, just by bulldozing your way through whatever objections that people put up to it, it suddenly just struck me, well, of course, that's, that's right. But why it hadn't occurred to me before that, I don't know. But there is much practice on the left that does that kind of dogged... Yeah, it's dogmatism. It's a refusal to examine things on the basis of what's the evidence offered to accept that explanation rather than another and weigh that up and choose which one that has the best evidence to back it up. So the inference to the best explanation is just saying that, well, what has the best evidence to support the argument being made? And that's what you do, and you, you weigh it up on the basis of who has the most convincing explanation. Why, why, is that, why is that so difficult for, I mean, like, you would think that would be like a really 
obvious thing to um, hold as an important part of truth-seeking? I mean, so you've sort of answered this question a little bit, but maybe we can get to it into a little more. Like, why is that a rarity in the left? You know, why the dogmatism? Because I, th- I think that that kind of fortress mentality where you are defending a, a revolutionary position or idea against things that are hostile to it. And so they have a a bunker mentality to some extent that whoever attacks them, they will guard themselves against those attacks and they they build up this intellectual armour that is it's just really bad for just being open and honest and and instead of that they they become dogmatic because it's them against the world and that they they see anyone who challenges their ideas as a, an attack on the revolutionary true way, if you like. They, they just assume that they're right, rather than thinking, how do I know that I'm right, and how do I test my ideas out so that I can ground them in the best possible evidence, which would be a much better way to conduct yourself. But this is by no means uh, limited to the left. I mean, people who have historians of... Uh science, uh, sociologists of science, uh, have talked about this a lot. This is kind of one of the key ideas of Thomas Kuhn, you know, the structure of scientific revolutions. The old guard is very intransigent, typically. They hold on to their ideas, and it really, that's why you have not just onward and upward gradual progress. It takes a scientific revolution I mean, basically, he was saying, in terms of their categories, the alternatives that are being offered just don't compute. I mean, if, if you're thinking like the Copernican Revolution and Galileo saying the Earth moves, well, to the old paradigm, part of the definition of Earth is something that's stationary, that doesn't move. So to talk about the Earth moving, is it's, it's very hard for them. So it's dogmatism or it's what the Bayesian folks would call very strong priors you know but eventually as Max Planck the physicist says eventually you know when you've got a a new idea that's successful it's not that it convinces the old guard they just die and a new generation comes along for whom that the the new ideas are just not 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 so unacceptable so this is the case this is the way human beings are but then the question is does that mean that we have to put up with it no because you see that like in 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 the natural sciences there is progress that that is made there is seeking the best explanation instead of can i hold on to the existing explanation come what may okay no things progress and i i think the issue is therefore it's not a question of people's mentality but that people get challenged there are procedures there are rules there are methods within the discipline that make those who have certain ideas have to confront evidence have to confront their challengers that's what does not happen on the left the left systematically excludes internal critics to prevent their ideas the the critics ideas from being heard and being aired but that also prevents challenges to the existing ideas it prevents the people from who who have those existing ideas from really taking them seriously looking at the gaps looking at the problems and revising their own thought to make it better 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the idea of left unity on the basis of contradictory ideas for action is a real problem. But I, I think the left often bury that but rather than thinking, OK, rather than seeing themselves as, as part of a movement that's trying to work out how do you best further our understanding of what's happened and how do you engage in even polemical arguments that are trying to draw attention to what are the flaws in the reasoning and the assumptions that are being made and make all those explicit. It's kind of done by kind of innuendo, personal attacks, reductio ad absurdum, but it's not even that. It's just it's just a lot of things on the left are done in a very underhanded way. And I think that being above board and making explicit what your criticisms are and so one of the kind of examples that I drew on in the article was the episode of the podcast that you had with the critic of Grover Fur, uh, Leslie Rimmel. And someone wrote in a comment accusing us of fascist free speech. The charge being that if we, if we didn't have Grover Fur on, to, in, on that episode to answer the charges being made against him, we were engaging in something that was underhand. And I just think, well... You haven't said anything that deals with the substantial issues. You're not dealing with any of the evidence or any of the argumentation. It's just a slur against this professor of Soviet history from some university that you don't like. And you, she uses the dismissive term of like, darlings of the mainstream historians. And I just think, well, if you've got an argument against this woman, then make your argument. Trying to slur someone through an ad hominem attack is just not the way to conduct an argument. Yeah, and for some of these groups, even though they express the desire to, you know, scale up to be mass organizations or, or to sort of be real players on the battle of ideas, they are actually very small operations, small organizations or journals with a sort of limited circulation, and they have their people who read their stuff and agree with their ideas, and they don't really have any need to like rock the boat or engage with a wider, broader scope of ideas and criticism because it could cost them um, the reputation they have within their small circle of, of adherence. You know, really, it seems like they're happy to just exist in, as a small, independent thought silo that doesn't have to interact with the rest of the world. But, I mean, you can be small and still want to play a part in the process of clarification. It's not the size of the organisation that, that matters in that regard. It, it's more that if if you're not committed to a job of trying to further understanding or search for truth, then you've got to ask yourself, well, what is your purpose? Just to parade your credentials as a radical? I, I, I just... I don't understand how once you've been presented with an idea that knocks yours knocks your own flat, then to my mind you just go, okay, fair enough. That's why when I came across MHI, it was it was a, a question of to begin with. I I didn't really get it. I thought there were some interesting things there, and I found them challenging. But as soon as I did get it, I thought, okay, this is right. I I have to accept this. Um, you say, so you say in your paper, quote, making assumptions explicit so that people can more easily follow one's logic is even more important for revolutionaries than in bourgeois debate. So why is this? Why is it more important for revolutionaries than in bourgeois debate? Because 
for us in trying to challenge the way that the world is organized now and argue for a different kind of society it's very easy to adapt to prevailing ideas of this society so for example the way in which after the internal defeat of the russian revolution you know even during the process of the russian revolution they were struggling with the problem of nationalism which is a very kind of bourgeois idea it's there from the formation of the nation state but as the nation state becomes solidified the identification of masses of workers with their own rulers as part of the same nation is something that's very very difficult to shake entirely i mean you you can move along some way and even when you think that you've um, seized power and you've um, started to change society those ideas are actually very difficult to overcome and you have to be very conscious of what it's required to challenge them on a consistent basis so I, th- I think the problem being that the ruling ideas of any epoch are those of the ruling class, as Marx said in the German ideology. And that's true. I, I, I think that most things that you take for granted will be a reflection of the, you know, the society that we live in. And if you want to present an alternative vision of a new society, then you have to have an almost total vision of what that would require. And you can't do it in a half-hearted, partial manner because then you'll have all these these bourgeois assumptions of how our world works creeping into your vision, your alternative vision of how society should work, and that's that's a real problem. So there are, I think, seven paragraphs in the paper in which you discuss Ryadunovskaya and Marxist humanism. Well, this was part of my illustration of not eliding relevant distinctions in thought. So. Dunevskaya had the um, pejorative term postmarked Marxists. If you talk to like most kind of Trotskyists, they would tell you that Trotskyism is just kind of Leninism that didn't undergo Stalinism. The Stalinists started calling themselves Marxist-Leninists, and the Trotskyists broke with that. The Stalinists will just, or even Leninists who who aren't Stalinists, will say that well. You know, Lenin just brought Marx up to date and he expressed a lot of the things for the 20th century that Marx did for the 19th. And he brought Marx's theory of um, imperialism up to date. And it's all—it's always just a historical continuity between the thoughts of Marx, Lenin, Trotsky. And it, it's suggesting that they, they are all on a par and that there is no distinction between them other than in time. They, they, they form a historic continuity. One head grows out of the others. All of their iconography is, is like that. You got Marx, you got Engels, you got yeah. you know Lenin, you got Trotsky, then you might have Stalin and Mao, yeah. or you might have David Graeber or somebody. Yeah. Yeah. The thing that Dinishkaya did was, and she had a, a very deep appreciation for, for Lenin, and she worked with Trotsky as well, but she... In exploring their ideas and seeing their connection with each other, she came to the conclusion that, well, Marx has to be understood as the as something different in terms of how he viewed the relationship between revolutionary ideas and the revolutionary movement of the working class. And she suggested that Marxism, as laid out by Marx, represents something different to that laid out by Lenin and certainly by Trotsky and like successive Marxists. And so 
her insistence on Marx and Marx alone being the originator of Marxism was part of that kind of looking at what does a, a thinker represent and her whole delving into the influence of Hegel on Marx, which a lot of people lost. Lenin picked it up for a while, but even he didn't, according to Dinesh Kaya, apply it quite as um, as consistently as he might have done. He he, he did. And so all, the, all those things are a very good illustration of how arguments develop over time and the connection between revolutionary movements and revolutionary thought is quite an important one to understand in their historical context. That's why I spent so much time going into why RD was important and obviously Marxist Humanist Initiative is working in in her tradition and and her explication of Marx. So I got a sense as well that a lot of it, the discussion of Marxist humanism and Dunyevskaya's thought had to do with this need to make assumptions explicit. And I think you were telling a lot of people at various points, you take this for granted, you take that for granted, you take the other thing for granted, and you just proceed on that basis. But we don't accept your starting point. You're making these assumptions that you're not even aware of, and these are assumptions that we don't happen to accept because we're Marxist humanists. We're different. And so you can proceed down the roads that you're proceeding, but first of all, you're not going to convince us, and second of all, you're not saying anything that we can even engage with because you're not meeting our our basic uh, objection, which is at your starting point. Did I understand you correctly there? Yeah, kind of. I mean... There's a real pro- problem of positivism in, by that I mean just not accepting the potentialities in a situation, but only accepting what is as true. So the, the whole idea of understanding something in the process of development and the kind of the dialectical understanding that something that has life is something that moves itself. And so a... A revolutionary subject is one that undergoes a self-transformation. And for, for Dineshkaya, that's, that's quite an important idea because it's a direct counter to vanguardism. And if you understand the dialectic in the way that Dineshkaya did through looking at Hegel's influence on Marx, then the whole process of a revolutionary movement and a a working class coming to an awareness of its own situation and how that expresses itself at different points in history and is reflected in revolutionary theory however inadequately she she goes into all of that and looks at the shortcomings of theory not meeting the, the rise of revolutionary movements and it's it's just brilliant the way that she does it. So yes, that the, the starting point for Dinesh Gaia was to just look at how the revolutionary ideas are expressed in any div, in in any given period, and she tries to develop them um, for our own period or for her own period. And MHI tries to do that for today. So Ravi, you you go through a lot of problems, procedures for not getting mired in those problems for avoiding them in the first place, the procedures for how to conduct a proper revolutionary argument and so forth. But then you make clear that you're not just talking hot air here, because this is one of the things I appreciated the most about your article. 
you look at some instances, you look at some examples, and you say, here are three examples that MHI has recently encountered of bad practice, and here's what was done, and here's why it's not proper. Here's why people should not be doing that. Here's why we're calling, or I am calling that out, you, Ravi Bali. And then you say, but, you know, like, not to just be negative, here's some examples of better practice. So you got three of one, you got three of the other. I, I thought the, the, the term better practice was very interesting because, you know, this is not like model practice in some cases. It's just like may, maybe it hits the very bottom rung of minimal acceptability or something in some of these cases. So I, I, I very much appreciated that. I know you've gotten some response to your article. I want to know, have you gotten any response to the discussion of those examples? And what what has the discussion that you've encountered been like? Are people at all engaged with the issue of procedure and proper conduct? Or, or are they just like, I like this idea and I don't like that idea? No, I think it's mostly of the latter, that they, they take exception to a specific thing that's said. So one encounter I had online was some guy said, um, no, I am a, a dyed-in-the-wool Leninist vanguardist. So I, I have, if you, if you think that the working class are so, kind of have such revolutionary potential, why are they all heading towards Trump or towards reaction in Europe? And it's it's just like, well, if there's any sense of having responsibilities as a revolutionary, then the question of how do you conduct a disagreement is fundamental because if we can't even have a, a practice by which you say, okay, we are obviously coming at this from different viewpoints and we have a different take on this issue. If we don't have a way of engaging with each other that clarifies the issue and allows us to all move forward, then we're, we're in trouble because that process of clarification is what's needed for mass movements to be able to see revolutionary ideas and see what their significance is for the movements that they're part of. So if, if people are thinking, okay, there's all these issues going round, but they're not presented in a clear and explicit manner, then people can't learn from them. And you have to have an agreement that engaging with each other in a substantial way, addressing the points that each of you make, trying to understand what the basis of your argument is, challenging that basis or challenging the inference from the premise, if you don't do it in that logical, ordered way, rather than just like scattershot approaches where you, you can just be, you know, making fairly random things and, and picking up things that are don't seem to logically hang together. If you can't critique something in a systematic way because it hasn't been laid out in a systematic way and you've got to do a lot of work to piece it all together, people will find that much more difficult to follow. Keep things clear Keep things ordered and structured properly so that people can follow the logic. Argue on the substance of what's being said by your opponent. Recognize when there's new information that you have to revise what you've been saying is. All these things are important for the process of clarification. And these are things that whatever the content of your argument are, or it, whatever the content of your argument is, then you should be able to agree to them. Because... That they're just rules for arriving at truth, which any revolutionary should be prepared to accept, wherever you're coming from. The closing paragraph as to why any of this is important is that 
most people, when they think about how the world is, they are, by implication, also addressing what the world could be. Because understanding the way the world is and understanding how it's structured, its limitations, what the, the forces in support of it are, those who aspire to something different, having a clear vision of that is important for the possibilities of revolution. And being clear-headed and having clear argumentation about that, whether you are right or wrong, having all the different inputs from different sources and conducting that in an open and honest revolutionary manner, I think will advance the movement. That's why this kind of procedural stuff is so critical, because you can have differing viewpoints, but the process of clarification comes through having the clarification of what those differences are, what the assumptions are, what the form of argumentation are, what's the evidence to back up all this stuff, and a proper examination of that is what allows people to decide who's right and who's wrong, and that will be tested in in the movement to change society. I think this is really important. Well, uh, Ravi Bailey, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yes, thank you so much, and listeners, if there's one thing you read this month, it should be Ravi's essay. Thanks, guys. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course to share with all your friends and enemies. 